You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, I'm Robert Wright. I run the Non-Zero Foundation, which produces The Glenn Show and all other shows on Blogging Heads TV and Meaning of Life TV. We host a variety of voices, some of them highly unorthodox, and we encourage dialogue that is sharp but civil. We think fostering constructive conversation is especially important now that America, and even the world, is looking kind of fragile. If you agree that our mission is important, I hope you'll consider helping us shoulder the cost. You can do that by becoming one of our cherished patrons at patreon.com slash nonzero foundation. That's N-O-N-Z-E-R-O-F-O-U-N-D-A-T-I-O-N. Thanks. We need your help, and we deeply appreciate it. Okay, John, the tape is rolling. We are on the record. This is uh, Glenn Lowry at the Glenn Show, blogheads.tv, sponsored by the Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs at Brown University, where I'm a professor of economics. And I'm with John McWhorter of Columbia University, where he is a professor of the humanities. And we are the Black Guys at blogheads.tv. We talk every now and then about all manner of things, and we're back. How you holding up, John? Uh, pretty good. I, I, um, I don't like teaching online. It's like singing underwater. And I'm <laughs> sure we both um, are getting offers to speak these days, but now it's all remote and I'm turning down money. I just tell people I do not feel like sitting in my study and pretending that it's a talk, not even for money. Just ask me again when we can be in a room. So that's exhausting and you have to reformat your courses. But, you know, it's worse than not having a job. That's how I'm holding up. How are you holding up? Well, you're right not to complain because we definitely are privileged as, as the uh, word is uh, being bandied about, but it happens we to be here. true. Happens to be true. <laughs> I haven't missed a beat. By the you way, know, folks, yes, this is beer. Keep going. He, he has beer. I would have whiskey if I hadn't already drunk it all. <laughs> uh, we have jobs. Uh, we haven't missed a beat. At least I haven't. I'm on sabbatical leave now, so I'm sitting thinking my thoughts, writing my words, and uh, doing a lot of uh, media stuff. But, um, you know, uh, I happen to be right now at this moment in Chatham, Massachusetts, at the Chatham Bars Inn, a luxurious uh, coastal um, redoubt where my wife and I have retreated for a few days of, well, I guess I would call it R&R if I hadn't come off of a week previously of (laughs) R&R in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. (laughs) Wow. So life life is kind of good, except the country's going to hell in a handbasket, man. COVID-19 is, you know, what are we up over 200,000 dead now? Fires. Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg has died. Bless her. And, the West uh, Coast fires. Uh, the terrible. election is going to be a complete shit show. Oh, yeah. man, is it ever going to be a disaster? I'm so frightened for our country. Yeah. It's, uh, it's- you know, nobody is going to agree that whatever result is uh, arrived at is the right result. They're going to be fighting it out in the courts for months. I fear. I'm uh, prepared. For if that not in the streets, are minutes. you worried about that? Are you worried about uh, violence uh, from uh, either side of the, of the aisle? If uh, the other yes. side uh, tries to. Yes, I am. I, I worry. I don't know if there's going to be widespread fighting in the streets, but I'm worried about that certain kind of, um, Usually, well, always male, almost always teens and 20s, almost always white, 
although this time this might not be the case. But that lone wolf guy who goes somewhere with a gun and kills random people. And to be honest, I'm worried about that from either side this time. I mean, I shouldn't say anything about this because it'll encourage it, but I worry about the person from the left who is all fired up about, you know, how to be an anti-racist and white fragility and decides that some people need to die so that America will wake up to the message that we need to finally topple racism and that any ambiguity about Trump's election is just based on racism and therefore some people need to die. I'm worried about that as well as I'm worried about more Trumpists trying to pull the same sort of thing. Yeah. What what be isolated shooters? Excuse me. Uh, Yes. There's a lot to be worried about. I was going to ask you what in your estimation do you think responsible parties on um, either side of the uh, political divide should be saying now in order to tamp down and minimize the prospects relative to what some of them actually are saying now. Yeah. Yeah. I include, of course, the president of the United States in that. I mean, he's not Mm -hmm. always uh, the guy that tries to tamp it down. He's sometimes the guy that tries to gin it up. But uh, I've been hearing some things from the left, too, that give me the willies Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of people not accepting electoral outcomes and whatnot. So what should what should responsible party? What should Joe Biden, if anything, be saying that he's not saying? What should Donald Trump be saying that he's not saying? Well, I don't know if it's Joe Biden, because it's very easy for Joe Biden to say there's no excuse for violence. But it only carries so much weight, partly because he's such a specter of his former former self. It's not his fault. But I think leaders of branches of Black Lives Matter need to start saying very clearly that what we're talking about is not burn, baby, burn. And anybody who does this is besmirching our legacy and the message that we're trying to get out there and the constructive things that we're trying to do, because there are branches. It's getting to the point where the BLM is like, like the NAACP. I don't know when the last time was that the national NAACP mattered, but if you go to different cities, there are NAACP branches that are doing things. BLM is like that. There are some good things that some branches of black lives matter, whatever it is are doing from city to city. But, you know, the fact is it's becoming best known for burning things down and hurting people. And the leaders need to say it in clear language. Black people standing and saying the sorts of things that the mayor of Atlanta, um, Mayor Bottoms, actually said to a certain amount of criticism. You know, here's this black woman mayor of Atlanta who's saying there's no excuse for burning things down and breaking things and shooting people. And a lot of people thought of her as creating a paternal or a maternal message, that's got to stop. So we need something clearer from the left. We're not going to get it from Trump. I'm not sure who in his stead should give the message, but Trump is going to keep winking. But I think the left can do better. What is BLM? Black Lives Matter. Yeah, no, no, no. I didn't mean what does the acronym oh, yeah. stand for. Like, what are they? Yeah. I, it's a rhetorical question to a certain degree, but it's a little yeah. bit amorphous, isn't it? It's, it's kind of a sentiment yeah. as much as it is actually an organization. I can imagine a response to your concern would be we don't control. There's no way that we can control all of the various individuals who, you know, spontaneously identify with us or whatever uh, to vet, you know, what discipline could we possibly exert over them uh, to do that? Uh, So uh, there's that there's just an organizational problem, but I think there's also a kind of messaging problem too, because even to go down the road of, disavowing 
violence in a way credits the claim that there is violence. Now, of course, we know that there is violence, but we also know that there's a narrative that there are mostly peaceful protests. And we know that there is a strict adherence to this idea that the violent people and the protesters are kind of separate and independent forces that are at work. The protesters are legitimate protests and the violence people are opportunistic charlatans. And some of them may be false flag carrying, you know, plants uh, made to look uh, put there to make us look bad. So if we start doing what you want us to do, this is BLM to you, John McWhorter, uh, we're only going to end up uh, lending credence to the false narrative about uh, who we are and what we are. Of course, we're against violence. How many times do you want me to say that? When they assassinate a police officer, I'm supposed to issue a statement? Well, that ties me in some way to the assassin in ways that I don't even want. I'm not responsible for that, this kind of thing. Well, you know what, BLM, Ed, you're going to have to get past that. And frankly, if you do want to create true progress, if you want to build coalitions, and if you don't want to build coalitions, then you're dead in the water. If you want to build coalitions with people who didn't start out feeling the way you do, then you have to do something other than, and I know another response that will come from people like that. It can't be that some reporter shoved a microphone in your face during a protest and you said a little something on YouTube. That's not good enough. You have to write to the New York Times. You have to write to the Washington Post. You have to put things on Slate. You have to put things in the Atlantic. Official statements disavowing the sorts of people who are destroying property, as well as the sorts of people who, in the name of BLM, are now harassing innocent bystanders who don't join in with your movement. The new thing is that if you're just standing there watching us march by, you're part of the problem, and we're going to give you a hard time because being nice doesn't work anymore. That is gorgeous theater, but so is Eugene O'Neill and August Wilson. This is real life. If you want to build coalitions, you got to stop this. And even if you are, I'll stop talking to them as if it's uh, you, even if they are an amorphous organization, and they are, that doesn't discredit them. Even if there is a hazy line between the BLM person who is fighting against police brutality and also would like to reinstate the great society, and the person who in the name of BLM is walking around with their shirt off, burning things down and pushing people to the ground. Okay, there's probably a fine line. There's a certain critical mass who are going to have to say that this is not what we are. And even if there's an extent to which they feel like that's capitulating a little bit to, you know, respectability politics and what white people would like, although just as many black people would like it too, they have to understand that if they don't do it, they're not going to get anywhere. And I think some of them are thinking that at this moment of racial reckoning, things are going to be different. And I say, how? First of all, if Trump comes president again, really how? Or if Biden is president again, what is it going to build to have the loudest, most prominent, and in many ways most interesting organization speaking for black people, being one that is well known for all over the country harassing people and burning things down and getting into scrapes with cops with no particular clear agenda. Where's that going to go? You can tell where that's going to go because we saw it about 50 years ago. So they just need to think about that, I think. How would you compare in terms of the moral authority in American politics, the racial reckoning sentiment of which Black Lives Matter is uh, emblematic and to some degree representative of today with the racial racial justice sentiments that animated the civil rights movement in its heyday in the 1960s. 
now, some people are going to say that's a silly question. Why would you even undertake the comparison? That could be your answer. But um, I'm, I'm struck. I mean, it's not just that it's amorphous and decentralized and, you know, uh, to a certain degree, uh, uh, fuzzily defined, ill-defined. Uh, it's that it stands on different ground, doesn't it? I mean, I, I want to say, uh, whereas the uh, the old school civil rights movement bought into the American uh, narrative and, uh, you know, sought to say, uh, you know, let us in, let us in. Uh, this is not that. This is kind of feels to me, and I'll stop. I'll let you tell me why I'm wrong. This is kind of, you know, burn this motherfucker down almost. I mean, it's kind of America ain't shit almost. Excuse my profanity, but that's the sentiment that I get from it. I don't think they like the nuclear family. I know they don't like capitalism. I don't know if they believe in in elections. I mean, again, with respect, I don't mean to disparage unnecessarily. I'm just one observer. I could be wrong with what I'm seeing. But uh, you, you say you got to persuade people. You need uh, a majority. You know, you got to get a coalition. Uh, I'm not sure uh, Robin DiAngelo and Ibram Kendi kind of anti-racism, white fragility uh, kind of stuff that gets kids in uh, you know, rural, uh, New Hampshire, white kids marching about on the side of the road will be LN signs. I'm not sure that goes far enough to, and I, maybe we're going to find out in this election that's coming up. But in any case, I invite your comment on, you know, do you think BLM, uh, is in the same relationship to the American, uh, uh, narrative to the American enterprise, you know, the, the American, uh, the thrust of the American story here? as had been the previous uh, incarnations of African-American freedom fighters. Yeah, um, I think some people were, would accuse me of conflating Black Lives Matter with something larger, which is this whole new woke movement. But I feel permitted to do that because I think we're talking about a thing, a, a thing, so to speak. There is, there's something amorphous, but there's a mood. And yeah, it is different from that time that I'm glad I was too young to really have to think about because I used to look back at 1966 and think, damn, the group think must have been so oppressive. I've always thought if I were 20 in 1966, I can tell everybody would have expected me to think one way. I probably wouldn't have, and I would have suffered. I'm glad I missed it. And now here we are. The problem with this new thing is that it's based on a certain fundamental proposition, which is for us black people, the rules have to be changed. And the reason that the rules have to be changed is because our brown skin makes us discriminated against in a more acrid way than the Irish or Italian people, or even Latinos is the understated idea. And that therefore, it has to be different for us. And we're seeing that focus today with the whole idea that even what we consider reason has to change. And so that's critical race theory and the idea that what exactly happened to you doesn't matter. You're going to argue on the basis of your race's whole narrative. And the idea that you're supposed to be being strictly logical, strictly individual even, is something that we need to get past. We need to reconsider, frankly, the Enlightenment. An awful lot of this rhetoric, and some of this runs throughout the work of Professor Kendi, I hate to say, is an idea that we need to rethink what we think of as how it is to reason. Kendi has a passage where he writes that maybe we need to evaluate students based on, for example, their desire to know. In other words, their curiosity. And translate that spunk 
So we're supposed to just measure people, not on the basis of grades and test scores and whether they can do long division, but on their desire to know. That's anti-enlightenment. And so many, I think, like, let's reconsider STEM. And you have bright, black, Shut down STEM. Young. Isn't that the hashtag? Shut down STEM. Yeah. And bright, young, I'm almost done. Bright, young physicists. I'll take your turn, man. Black physicists who are sitting there arguing that we need to reconsider what good physics is. And if anybody doesn't believe me, Chandra Prescott Weinstein, Chanda, not Chandra, Chanda Prescott Weinstein has written a piece where unless I'm missing something, the idea is we need to reconsider what good physics is supposed to be. Problem is this isn't going to work. That whole business of the rules have to be changed isn't going to work. Even Stokely Carmichael wasn't arguing that we're going to change what we think of as reasoning and intelligence and achievement. He was just saying, if you guys aren't going to let us in, we're going to burn things down. This new thing is that we're going to, we're going to disavow the enlightenment. And you and I have been listening to people saying things like that on college campuses for our whole careers, but now it's burst through and it's not going to convince anybody. That's the problem. Okay, I, I gotta channel my dear friend Stefan Alexander, the professor of physics here at Brown University, an African American from New York City, a brilliant jazz musician and theoretical physicist whose book, The Jazz of Physics, could be read. Stanley Crouch would love this book. The late Stanley Crouch would have loved this book. I don't know if he ever read it. This is Steph Alexander. I'm gonna channel him. He's I think just now completing his term as president of the National Association of Black Physicists, and he is a serious, you know, theoretical physicist. I've actually tried to read some of his papers and, you know, I wasn't able to figure out what he was talking about. because Unreachable to us. Yeah. But, it, but it, it's the real deal. I can tell that much. Uh, now, if he were here, I think he would say something like the following. I think he would say every epoch in the evolution of science has had its cultural um, uh, sub, substrata, subtext. I mean, there is convention. There's the way physicists relate to each other. There is the kind of, you know, dynamic that goes on. There's mentorship. There's the, there's the, uh, uh, you know, the, you know, this book by Thomas Kuhn, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, where he makes everybody should read it. Yeah. You know, so there's a consensus. There's the normal science kind of thing. And then somebody cuts across it with a new idea. And uh, I, I can't reproduce Steph's sophisticated argument here, but the bottom line of it is diversity in the community of sciences has the potential to uh, significantly enhance the vitality of the creative dynamic. He's not, saying, he's, he's not saying there's black mathematics. This is not what he's saying. But he is saying a kind of closed old boy network of uh, – uh, relationships amongst physicists, which he would, you know, he tells a story. This is Steph Alexander, theoretical physicist at Brown University, addressing the question of whether or not there's an important cultural element to the dynamic of creativity and productivity within science and affirming that. The book is called The Jazz of Physics. The book he's working on now, the working title is Fear of a Black Universe. Okay, because I don't understand that. Well, you know what black matter is. Maybe you don't know what dark matter is, but well, I don't, I I don't know what dark matter is. I couldn't give a, an adequate no, account of it. What does it have to do with dark people? Go ahead. Yeah, well, it, it has to do with outsiders. It, it has to do with people who haven't uh, 
been completely assimilated into the kind of core club of conventionality and, and, you know, consistent mutuality of thought. Somebody's got a weird kind of idea and they're prepared to pursue it. They, they're already outsiders. What do they have to lose? Einstein sitting in that, uh, telegraph office or wherever he was in, uh, Geneva or Switzerland or wherever working on these three papers. He wrote three papers and published them in one year. Any one of these papers could have won a Nobel Prize, I'm told. Uh, this is Einstein. But Einstein was not in the old boys network. Einstein was standing outside. Something like that. I mean, I'm, I'm gesturing because, you know, my heart's not in, my heart is not really in this argument. I've been trying to disabuse Steph. I've, I've been saying to my, my friend Steph, man, if Einstein has spent as much time thinking about being Jewish as you spend thinking about being black, he never would have written those papers. <laughs> so that's the Glenn Lowry position that you'll be familiar with. But I'm just trying to give voice to this to this other idea, this idea about how diversity is creativity, about how culture and science are not completely independent of one another, um, about how shaking things up, you know, uh, with, uh, by being an outsider can, can, uh, can really be creative and about the protective dynamic that goes on amongst the, the, the establishment to, to, you know, exclude and, and, and prevent these kind of new ideas from coming in. I, now, I worry though, and I don't yeah. know his. I don't know his work, and, you know, I like physics. I, I read pop physics a lot, but as you were saying, there's a point where you just can't go. You know, like, and I, so I don't know the, 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 you have to be a physicist to understand. Right. But I don't know. I worry that with that perspective, it's almost inevitable that if you, being the outsider that you are, meet any kind of resistance, as in the resistance that all humanities and science people should encounter because you're fighting for your ideas talk about coon that you're gonna assume that it's because of your color rather than that you're just one of the boys one of the people like for example there are two things in linguistics that people criticize me a lot for very quickly one of them is what I have said a Creole language is. And the criticism that I get on the basis of that is because of a proto version of this woke thing that we've seen here. I say some things about Creoles that are inconsistent with what a certain crowd of linguists want to hear, which is unempirical. And so I'm, you know, used to be unpc, now I'm unwoke. And Tell us so what, what those things are if you can do show and sort compass. Real quickly. So, for example, Haitian Creole is developed from French. Haitian Creole gets rid of 97% of anything that makes French hard to learn. The reason for that is that it was created by adult slaves encountering French, and it's harder to learn a language when you're growing. So they start with this stripped-down French. Then they make it into a new language that has grammatical traits of its own, including some things that are complicated. But because all of that happened only 300 years ago, Haitian Creole, grammatically, is not as needlessly complex as French. Okay. That is a fact. What I just said makes people like Michelle DeGraff of MIT, yep, Michelle, I'm calling you out. Sally <laughs> Coco Mufwene of the University of Chicago. Sally, I am definitely calling you out because these people abuse me mightily. And I'll leave the other ones they, out. They're saying that, you're, that they read you as saying that Haitian Creole is kind of like an inf, inf, infantilization of French or a no, masterization of French or something it, like it, that. It's worse. They pretend to think that I'm saying that because they're oh, so they know better. <laughs> now, see, yeah, that is one thing. And frankly, it's so easy to parse and I'm done with it. Okay. The second thing, though, 
is that I have made this argument in a nutshell that some languages around the world are less complicated in that way than others because some languages get learned more by grown-ups. And so I pick some languages nobody's ever heard of, and I say, well, it must be that in the social history there was some kind of adult learning of these languages, and here's some evidence of that, although it's not definite. And, you know, there's a lot of resistance to that among some linguists that has nothing to do with race or anything like that. It's based on, like, six different currents of thought, some of it tracing to how people looked at language when they were German and had three names 150 years ago. A tiny bit of it is people who are being sensitive about whether we call one language more complicated than another one for race reasons. But when I've run up against resistance to this, from linguists beyond Michelle de Graff and Sally Kokomokwene, it's because these are difficult issues. And sometimes they're things I miss. Frankly, they're things they miss. And it's my job to spend my career arguing the point and hopefully making it so that more than 50% of linguists see what I mean. I'm in the game. I worry from that guy you're talking about, this, this Steph, that I'm supposed to think that if I'm at a conference where almost everybody's white and I'm making this argument up here, that the reason a lot of people don't believe me is because I'm a Negro. When really, I know that when it comes to this, they don't believe me because I'm a person. And that's, and my job is to keep on going. It's not racialized, but I worry that if he thinks of this business of dark matter, then I'm supposed to be at that Africanist conference where frankly, almost everybody is white often. And I'm supposed to be thinking they don't believe me because I'm black, which frankly I've seen in some black linguists. When I know they wouldn't believe me if I were white as butter. But I worry that he might not be open to that. And again, I don't know, but that's what worries me about this. Well, let's talk about you. I mean, because you said there were two things, and I'm I'm willing to bet uh, that uh, behind the uh, Haitian Creole, the other one that gets you into trouble is uh, Black English. Um, that's a whole other thing. I've never talked about Black English being oh, here. But so, so what is the other thing? Well, with Black English, there's a whole other group of people who are mad at me because 25 years ago, I said that it didn't need to be used in the classroom as a bridge to standard English. I just said Black English is great, and I think I've proven it in many books since. But I just said the reason that Black kids are having trouble learning to read is because they aren't taught how to read properly. That was considered a disloyal thing to say because I was supposed to have my fist up in the air and say that Black kids were being denied their translation rights. I'm long past that. But, yeah, there's some people who have never gotten over that I said the wrong thing when I was a little boy then. Okay, so you're not buying the the sort of Afro critique of conventional uh, science because you think it's, you know, it's the X's and the O's. It's just basically what it is. I do. It's it's going to be the same no matter what continent you're on, no matter what epoch you're in. But what about the social sciences? I mean, we're both social scientists in a way. And uh, it seems to me that, you know, something like ethnography, you know, I would really, really, really like to know what goes on inside a Black Lives Matter uh, meeting when the doors are closed and they actually force all the cameras to turn off and all the journalists to leave. I, I mean, I just give that as one example. I'd love to, I would love to have known when Michael Brown was killed by, um, um, Derek. Derek. Uh, no, um, no. Darren Wilson. Darren Wilson, Wilson, exactly, in uh, Ferguson, Missouri. Um, and, uh, you know, there was, uh, a lot of stuff that was going on in the residences of the local people, African Americans, you know, in terms of loyalty and what did you see and what do you tell them? And, you know, I mean, I would have loved to have an insight account about that. I'd love to know, I mean, all these kids getting shot in these drive-by shootings in places like Chicago and whatnot. 
I mean, I'd, I'd like to know what the interior life of uh, the people who are doing these deeds are. I want to know how they, as it were, feel about it, how they, how they live with it, you know, what, what, you know, the motivations are and things like that. Anyway, many, there are many things that I would like to know about African American life or about American life that I don't know if it's, you know, uh, I don't know if it's possible to find these things out, uh, without investigators that bring a certain sensibility to the, to the inquiry. Not only because the subjects that they want to study will react differently to them in virtue of their identity, but also because the questions that will be asked and, you know, the, the uh, relationships that will be cultivated and, and whatnot might, might be different. Now, this is not saying that Alice Goffman, the white woman, I was just going to sociologist, is right. illegitimate if she goes and lives with a bunch of gangbangers and, you know, tries to figure out why they're running from the cops and what their girlfriends are doing and whatnot that she, because she's white, can't do it. I'm not saying she can't do it, but I'm thinking it's, she is white. (laughs) That certainly has some bearing on the nature of those relationships and what people are willing to reveal. It certainly is going to, in some way or another, with respect, I love Alice Kaufman. I know her well and, and have great admiration for her. She's very talented ethnographer to the questions that she's going to ask and the kind of line of inquiry that she's going to pursue the best ethnographers, of course, and Alice is a very good one, are aware of the potentiality of this kind of investigator, you know, bias or whatever, and uh, work to, to counteract it. Mitch Denier, he's another ethnographer whom I'm friendly with and um, admire at Princeton and mm-hmm. um, uh, is, is, you know, his book, uh, what does he call it, Sidewalk, where he does a exploration of these guys who stand on the corner selling you magazines and, mm-hmm. you know off of tabletops, you know, homeless guys who, you know, pull themselves together and, and trying to hustle what their life is like. Uh, he has a long epigraph at the end of the book where he reflects on this very kind of contamination issue. But anyway, I'll stop. You see what I'm getting at? Wouldn't culture of investigator somehow factor in to the process of getting at, quote, the truth about social life through ethnographic investigation and mm-hmm. uh, isn't there a kind of inescapable subjectivity in the whole thing that uh, you would never want to see a profession of those practitioners be, um, uh, you know, devoid of the representation of uh, people from the different uh, corners of society, something like that? That's a very interesting point, especially about those two. Unless I have issues with both of them that you don't, apparently. But it well, seems to me that um, I'll and I'll explain them. Okay. As far as I'm concerned, the problem with that kind of ethnography, as valuable as they are, I try to read all of them that I know of since the 60s, is that in a way, the ones from the 60s are, I find better in that they're more honest, they're more comprehensive in terms of exploring the full humanity of the people. The ones that have happened in our modern era Anybody who goes and does it and gets any attention, like a real publisher, and then, you know, you read about it in the Times and you get it and they get interviewed and you find out about them and they become minor celebrities. It's always a person who goes in as a fan rather than as an unbiased observer. And it's good that there's a fan because you can learn what's good about people where it might be difficult to glean just from the outside what's good. So, yes, you counteract the sense of inner-city people as depraved villains. But Alice Goffman, on the run, 
I have a little yeah. problem with that book. And it's not that she got so close to them that, you know, there became a problem as to whether or not she was aiding and abetting. It's that there's a subtext with all of the guys who she's hanging around with that is not discussed. Why don't they have jobs? Now, she has a few things to say, but they aren't comprehensive. They aren't the sorts of things that would make it impossible for somebody to earn enough money to keep the wolf from the door. And yet from the very beginning, she makes it seem like it's so self-evident why these people don't work legally or don't work under the table in some non-dangerous way to just kind of keep the wolf from the door the way many men in those communities do. That's just off the table. I don't like that. I find that inaccurate because the reason a lot of those guys don't work for a living is not because they're depraved villains. It's because of cultural patterns in their community that determine what's considered a norm so that often they're not connected to the networks. And sometimes they're not inclined to push themselves hard enough to find legal work because they haven't known that many guys who do. That doesn't make them bad people. It makes them, let's go back to Omar. I completely sympathize with Omar. But that's a problem with On the Run. That book made me think, does she explain why these men are so semi-employed and or on the wrong side of the law? And I understand that if you've got a record, that bars you from certain employment. I also know, though, that if you've got a record, it doesn't bar you from all employment. There are various things that you can do. And these guys aren't doing it. I'm not criticizing them. No matter what I say, some people listening to me are going to think I'm putting them down, but I'm not. And then with Denier, same thing. He has passages where the black homeless guy who maybe has a bit of a substance abuse problem is sitting on the street and kind of harassing women as they go by because that's what a person might do. And, you know, he's bored. He doesn't have a woman of his own, and that's the closest he's going to get to interaction. I get that. Denier doesn't like it that women often don't like that and that they say something mean. He doesn't like it that the women ignore them. He thinks it's the responsibility of we other citizens to connect as warmly as possible with those guys. And let's face it, in New York, often in some neighborhoods, it's one of them every block. And he thinks that the snippy white girl who walks by a guy like that and you know says something mean when he says something about her breasts, he thinks that she should have more sympathy. I think that's going too far. I think that in a way it infantilizes that guy. Like maybe he can't help it, but no, Caitlin is not responsible for looking him in the eye and treating him as a kindly guy. And that's what Denier thinks. And that runs throughout a lot of his work. Too much sympathy. And to be honest, if Ibram Kendi, the word, he's going to become like our Tanahasi coach. But yeah, let's not do that. If somebody like him did the same ethnography, they would have the same feeling. So all these people are the same, whether they're white or black. I would okay. like to see people go through a little more holistic than that. Okay. Well, I'm I'm, I'm not going to try to defend these people who are, are perfectly capable of defending themselves. Uh, sidewalk. I don't know what prizes it might have won. I mean, it's now 15 years old or whatever it is. Uh, it, it did make a splash when it came out. Denier's at Princeton and he has a he has a decent reputation. I don't know the passages that you're talking about in Sidewalk. I just don't remember them, but I believe you. Uh, you know, because he is sympathetic uh, to Hakeem Hassan, who was one of his subjects. Uh, as a guy uh, yes. I happened to get to know Hakeem mm-hmm. Hassan. He's a good guy. Uh, he is sympathetic to uh, the the plight of the lives of the struggles of of these guys. I mean, who've you know overcome a lot of different things, and you know it's it's an interesting set of questions about how people in face to face social uh, interaction deal with their differences of class and 
their perceptions and whatnot. You know, there's all kinds of mm-hmm. dynamics that's going on that are worth illuminating. So I, you know, I, I admire the work, but I also see what you mean about the old school, about Tally's Corner. Yeah. Uh, which would be one of the classics about Slim's yeah, Table, yeah. which was Elijah Anderson's early work, you know, uh, which which is a more straight ahead, dispassionate, objective. Uh, and yes, to some degree, critical. I mean, people may embrace, you know, this is the anthropological, this is cultural relativism, basically, isn't it? This is the mm-hmm. idea that we don't judge, you know, uh, but a person's maybe making decisions that are very harmful to themselves or to others around them. And the observing ethnographer owes us, doesn't he or she, the, uh, the veracity, the kind of fidelity to the, the, the truth of the matter to point out that this is self-destructive behavior. This is what uh, you see a little bit of that in Matthew Desmond's uh, uh, evicted. I don't know if you've read yes, the book. I did. Uh, Cause you kept talking about it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like the book. I admit that's a to, good book. Yeah. I admit to liking the book, uh, but, I, but, you know, Catherine Newman's No Shame in My Game. I don't know if you know that one. That's about work. I know it very well. And yeah. and she doesn't do what you were accusing uh, 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 somebody of doing here or, or, right. or, yeah. or Goffman. I mean, she basically says these kids run a gauntlet. You know, they're getting on the, uh, the subway in New York. They're riding from uh, Bronx over to uh, Staten Island or whatever it is to work in a, a fast food joint. And they, you know, they're getting $6 an hour or whatever it was at the time. Uh, but there's no shame in their game. They're, they're putting their head. And she credits that corporate America may have a role to play in uplift for uh, poor people by a ladder of, uh, you know, within the company advance and acquiring skill and giving them stability and, what not, because most, what's most important is getting up at seven o'clock in the morning, five days a week and getting yourself together and moving, you know, and, and, and realizing that uh, the hustle uh, temptation is, is really a dead end. Yeah. Newman's book, that one is um, unflinchingly honest. You get the good, you get the counterproductive. And to be honest, because she is who she is, her, I think her general thesis is there is a tragedy imposed upon these people from the outside, which is true, but there's always that naughty sociological problem that people can get stuck in habits that don't correspond to what conditions offer. So it's not only that the fast food restaurant is on Staten Island, they live in the Bronx. To be honest, it's now me. I don't remember the fast food restaurant being that far away. But she wrote very articulately about how these kids get made fun of for working in the fast food restaurant because that's considered chump change. Yeah. And you can't help thinking, well, if that's the only way to kind of get started and get some experience and maybe you become a manager and that's not being an investment banker, but it's better than nothing. That's a counterproductive thing in the community that I remember she called it burger barn. And it's clear that they're at McDonald's and burger. Yeah. You're a chump work at burger barn. Yeah. That's a problem. But you learn all of that from her book and you can't help but coming away thinking, Sometimes these people end up being their worst enemy through no fault of their own. I don't think she's prepared to look that in the eye, but at least she was honest enough to give the data. Yeah, I always thought that was a good. You know, she was viciously attacked from the left. uh, uh, I didn't know that. Oh, uh, Uh, Loic Vacant, a UC Berkeley uh, uh, sociologist, a friend of mine, actually, a nice guy and and brilliant guy, uh, uh, protege of Pierre Bourdieu. Uh, mm. Loic is, is a, is a Marxist. Okay. I mean, you know, Loic is a lefty. Uh, and he basically said it was a neoliberal apologia 
that she doesn't understand the structural conditions that are uh, creating this kind of low wage employment. Sure. Uh, given that that's all that's available to these kids, uh, they're going to get on the uh, treadmill and, you know, try to advance. But, uh, you know, if you think that that's the solution to the larger problem of uh, inequality and, and repression, uh, you're you're wrong. And you're you know, you're you're feeding into the capitalist, uh, you know, apologia. That, that's, this type that's not an unreasonable view. I, I get that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so what else are we talking about, John? Are we going to talk about uh, Stanley? Stanley? Stanley Crouch, late, great. What Stanley was your Crouch. relationship to him? He got he kind of reading him as part of what got me into this. Okay, like, it I was the it was New right. Republic. It, it, we really got to know each other because of Leon Wieseltier and Marty Peretz uh, at the New Republic in the 1980s. Uh, I can't cite chapter and verse of what he might have written that was in there, but he did do an occasional piece for the New Republic. We could look it up. He's a jazz critic, extraordinaire a culture critic, an African-American intellectual, autodidact, um, irascible, uh, fearless, uh, a protege also of, uh, of Albert Murray. You know, I mean, he had a complex view about the nature of race within the larger fabric of American society. You don't have black people without America. You don't have America without black people. Loved James Baldwin. Uh, loved uh, Ralph Ellison. Understood the philosophical depth of Ellison's uh, great work, Invisible Man, uh, whatnot. And I don't know, man. I was writing these pieces in uh, the New Republic that were saying civil rights movement have their heads up their butt. They got the same old mantra. <clears throat> they haven't noticed all these black kids running around without daddies in the house. Uh, they don't know what it's like to open up a little bodega on the corner and then have to put plexiglass up to keep yourself from getting robbed of the $300 in your cash register every other week. I remember those. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> and, uh, you know, on the one hand, uh, some people, like uh, the New Republic of that era, uh, may have never be forgotten, uh, were open to entertaining, you know, uh, some of this kind of critical dialogue. A lot of people, maybe even most people, certainly most progressives, uh, were very hostile to it. And, you know, I get a little missive from Stanley saying, yeah, man, right on, right on. And then, and then, and then when I crashed and burned because, you know, I had a drug issue that became public and I had a, a extramarital affair that blew up in my face and I was this rap, rapidly rising young black conservative intellectual Harvard professor close to the Reagan administration people uh, on my way to Clarence Thomas kind of, uh, you know, uh, martyrdom. <laughs> <laughs> and I crashed and burned with this public humiliation and everybody was like laughing at me and stuff and or, or just ignored me and whatnot. Stanley wrote and he said, Yo man, yo man, a lot of brothers done, you know, messed around outside their marriage, man. A lot of brothers snorting a little coke, you know, doing little whatever, whatever. Most of them don't have anything to say. You got something to say, man. <laughs> don't stop saying it. <laughs> Yeah, so he was, you know, and I'd go to down to New York City for whatever it was. Every now and then I'd call up Stanley, he'd take me around to a club, you know, listen to some music and whatnot. He knew all the musicians and whatnot. I mean, we weren't close. I'm not going to pretend that we were, you know, buddy, buddy, but we were more than passing acquaintances. He was um, uh, elected a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. I was very, very happy to see that. I was present at his induction. Uh, because this mm. is a brother without a college degree. He attended but did not l- get degrees from two community colleges out there in Los Angeles. That's Do you his, know, I didn't, that's I his didn't formal know that. education, man. I didn't know yeah. that. Hmm. 
and and he could talk to you about Wittgenstein, you know. I mean, uh, yeah. he, he was a very learned uh, brother. Um, he would, um, yeah, I would name check people he mentioned. I remember I learned who Johann Gottfried Herder was from Stanley's writing, and I thought, who's nationalist? What? And yes. now I know, and it's because of him. Yeah, you would just go through. See, for me, that's interesting. You talk about knowing him from the New Republic because, for me. I was reading The New Republic throughout the 90s religiously, and I remember both of your stuff back before I ever thought I would ever know you two. I'm just... I'm not that old. I'm not that old. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm out in California and whatever. I used to cut your pieces out. I mean, back when it's physical media and it's not online, I used to snip it. I still have some of them. They're yellow now in a box in one of my closets. And with Stanley, I didn't cut his out because his were so long. But I would read his books, and I remember thinking at the time that of the pe- the black people who appear in the New Republic, and it was a short list, I remember thinking I like that the two of them are so different, and yet in a way they agree about so much. And, you know, when I came to New York, you and I met when I was summoned to Massachusetts occasionally, but I met Stanley on the circuit right away. And same thing, we weren't friends, but we were more than passing acquaintances. I remember once... Um, Wynton Marsalis was at his birthday party. And so I was talking to both of them and Wynton played a solo, trumpet solo, and Stanley was standing right in front of the Damn. trumpet. And we used to talk on the phone sometimes. Boy, you could learn a lot from him. Like yeah. just anybody who cares about him now should just read all of his essay collections. And not only do you get pointed to what you should read, but you get pointed to what you should know. Yeah, he was um, truly a remarkable figure um i wish he had lasted a little longer i'd like yeah, to know way too young all man. 74 man. Example. yeah that's way so, too yeah. young mm-hmm. okay so uh we're, we're forgetting something um yeah. and i am because it's been a long day we wanted to talk about another thing um remember that thing that you mentioned at the beginning <laughs> was it um well there was uh princeton university getting its come up with uh, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so uh, President uh, Iceberger, I believe that's how you say his Ice name. Gruber. Ice, Ice Gruber. Gruber. I beg yeah. your pardon, President Ice Gruber. Mm-hmm. I got my G and my B uh, confused. The weird uh, name. Uh, had uh, issued one of these mea culpa type statements about Princeton recognizing how it was uh, deeply, uh, you know, a white supremacist institution and needed to do better. And then somebody. Man, somebody is awake over there in the uh, Trump administration's education department or or whatever. Somebody, I don't know about the president, but somebody is awake, said, oh, I see you're confessing to being a racist institution, are you? Well, last time I checked, Title X of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 prohibited that stuff, okay? So are you really a racist institution? We would actually like to look into that a little bit. Uh, maybe we want to see some of your data. Maybe we want some chapter and verse on uh, what you were talking about, putting the president of Princeton University either in a position of uh, of uh, self-incrimination uh, or uh, blatant hypocrisy and, uh, and hyperbole, uh, you know, because maybe Princeton isn't exactly a fundamentally racist institution that discriminates in its employment, that doesn't treat its students fairly or whatever, uh, or it is, in which case the federal government ought to be uh, doing something about it. And I thought, as I say, somebody uh, that sounded like a clever move to me on the part of whoever came up with that idea puts Princeton in a bit of a pickle, or does it? These fucking schools. <laughs> it's such 
performance art. These schools know that they're not racist institutions. It's all play. It's all posing. It's all semaphore. It's all underwear caked with dry yellow stains, to reference what I said before. And yeah, it's interesting that somebody in that administration of all places was clever enough to actually call Princeton on it. And I frankly feel that Princeton deserves anything it gets in the torturous gymnastics it's going to go through to, I suppose they're going to have to demonstrate their racism when a university campus is one of the least racist spots on earth. But what scares me, I actually, Stanford has a plan and Stanford is where I got my PhD and I was young and stupid and naive when I got my PhD and did a lot of theater, which meant that I knew a lot of undergraduates just because theater was mostly undergraduate, which meant that spiritually in some ways, and I'm not remotely trying to claim it, but Stanford feels like my alma mater. And it wasn't. I got my BA from Rutgers University, which was different. But when Stanford is the school that I really settled into. I knew it like the back of my hand. I had lots of great friends, relationships. So I, I, Stanford is very dear to me. And I heard today that um, they've got one of these plans that they're going to recruit minority, i.e. black faculty, black and Latino faculty, and they're going to recruit them in a brand new way. There's going to be this whole committee devoted to finding black faculty to recruit. And what I can't help thinking is that if these faculty weren't recruited before by Stanford University with its endless funds, then certainly was the reason racism? I mean, they're going to have to pretend that Something racist meant that these incredible black scholars were not tapped. It seems to me that this is going to be a recipe for dragooning people in on the basis of their color and their politics, their wokeness, as opposed to their chops. And somehow we're going to be told that that's the better thing. And we're going to have people pretending. And I really, my heart aches to an extent at the thought of a young black scholar who's brought in and celebrated in an insincere way. I love the way with people, I've seen this in my own life. Yes, I've experienced it. People say, oh, we're so happy you're here. And what they mean is that we're so happy you're black, as opposed to we're so happy that you are of the tippy-top ability of the rest of us, and we're going to have intellectual exchanges with you. Oh, we're so happy that you're here. There's going to be a lot of that, oh, we're so happy that we're here. I've watched it happen to colleagues of mine. And I really, I'm, I'm not with it but there's nothing that we can do. I hope that that effort fails, put it that way. I hope that they let that go. I hope that the performance artists partly that after a couple of years, they're just going to quietly let it go because otherwise they're condescending. You know, I've been watching Benny Hill lately because I used to think it was really funny in the eighties and I'm looking for comfort food because of all this shit and it It is as funny to me now as it was then, but you know how Benny Hill would pat the little bald guy on the head. Yeah. That is what all of these things are doing to serious black people who ought to know better. That's the that wrong. I didn't mean it that way. They should ought to know better, but I understand why they don't. They're doing it to serious black people who deserve better and who often don't know better because it's the only way they've been treated by white people in power. It makes me sad. Okay, I got a couple of uh, observations I want to make. One of them is to raise a question. I can see someone like Adolf Reed raising this question. Why is it that the institution's demonstration of its commitment to anti-racism takes the form of an employment subsidy to people of color? Well, why is that the measure? Well, I mean, we devote 
X percent of our endowment to establish a center for the study of educational opportunity for disadvantaged Americans or Americans of color, whatever. We devote Y percent of our endowment to an elaboration of the various literary canons within the oppressed peoples that, you know, uh, we, we want to solve the problem of homelessness and we have a, a task force that's devoted to the, all of the medical and psychological, sociological, political and whatever about, about whatever. The university could use its resources in lots of different ways to try to promote quote unquote racial justice. How does it happen that a full employment opportunity thrust for black PhDs becomes the touchstone of how it is that the university is demonstrating. So I think that must be interrogated because that is the starting point for the phenomenon that you just identified of bringing people in, of the rat race to try. And I don't see why it's necessarily so. Students, of course, are going to demand the faculty doesn't look like me, but they're students. We don't have to take them all that seriously. They could be told no, because the faculty composition by color is not the way in which we express our commitment to make America uh, a more racially just society. We want to solve the problem of mass incarceration, and we frankly don't care what color the person is who helps us solve that problem, we, et cetera. You know, so the, the, the bureaucratic logic of the internal pressures within universities, a lot of these committees, a lot of these uh, diversity and inclusion uh, uh, administrators, uh, uh, whatever, they, they're all kind of, you know, it's like a union, uh, in a way. I mean, they're all kind of, uh, uh, careerist. They're, they're, you know, uh, the, the Princeton letter, uh, I'm sure you saw it from some months ago where it was signed by all of these faculty and whatnot. They want a person of color to be the director of this particular institute. They say the last three directors were white. We need a person of color directing this particular institute. And I thought when I read that, I said, my God, how brazen. You're, you're, you're just, uh, you know, you're, you're just another interest group, uh, trying to, you know, make sure that you get more of the goodies than the, than the other people. So how is that just, how's that racial justice? So I think that question has to be raised. But the other thing I want to say, I've been talking about affirmative action the last couple of Glenn shows with Peter R.C.D. O'Connell, who's an economist at, uh, at Duke. Glenn, may I interject very quickly? Yes. Does he cool. have a response to that new study? Did you talk about uh, that new study? Yes, he does. He has a couple of responses. One response is they ought to have let the data out so everybody could look at it and vouchsafe that what this guy is saying is actually correct. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing he says is um, – well, if uh, indeed the new study finds that African-Americans on the whole, when they look at the later life employment and wages, were hurt by the banning of a proposition, uh, banning of affirmative action with Proposition 209, he says, well, um, uh, that's uh, that's uh, an interesting datum. Now, let's see, what does he say about that? Uh, you have to... <laughs> I'm afraid I don't remember exactly what he says, <laughs> although we're on the record. And think, let me say what I was trying to say, yeah. um, which was uh, uh, the difference between a single institution's incentives and what's possible for all the institutions to get to do together. Uh, here's the fact. There aren't enough talented African-American PhDs at the forefront of the disciplines uh, where uh, they're looking for faculty at these top schools for every top school to actually double 
its representation of black faculty in the next five years. All of them are going to say in their mission statements on diversity and inclusion that we're going to double our faculty representation. It's 6% now. It should be 12%. We're going to move toward that over the next five years. And it's just not feasible because there aren't enough good people. Um, I know that the CEO of um, Wells Fargo, the bank, just got into trouble. He's in the newspaper because he said something similar about executives in the finance industry, that they're just not enough talented blacks to be able to do what everybody wants to do. And he got into trouble and he has since apologized. And I don't know the finance industry demographics, so I'm not speaking to that. But I do know economics. There's not enough really talented first-rate Black economists for every first-rate department to have its quota of Black economists. There's just not enough. So that's a system-wide constraint. But within that constraint, any particular institution can out-recruit any other institution. And some of the objection is you should try harder, spend more money, double, redouble your efforts and whatnot, because Stanford can hire the people that would have gone to Berkeley or uh, UCLA. So Stanford can do it. Brown has uh, actually done pretty well in our objectives here, but I fear that uh, that's because the musical chairs game has been played by people here who know how to play it, and they're mm-hmm. able to get people to sit on their chair, and other people are left without anybody, uh, any place to sit, or however that metaphor was supposed to go. Glenn, isn't it sad that you say this, and you have to put this as what we linguists call new information. It's so easy. There are reasons why there wouldn't be that many. You know, we're 10 seconds past the civil rights victories of the 1960s. And you might even, you know, turn it on its ear. There is racism. Structural racism is real. And it does have an effect on how many top flight academics there are going to be who are black. Yeah. And so that means that it's a limited number. Instead, this whole debate is predicated upon everybody pretending to think that there are all of these top flight black economists out there working at the post office or laboring in community colleges that haven't been hired by the top rate schools because at the top rate schools, the faculties are racist that a black person can't get through. Who's really talented as if it hasn't been true for now 35 years that the top ranked black person is fought over by a great many schools. All these people know this. All these people in suits at the faculty lounge know this. And yet they're pretending that it isn't true and that there's this group of people out there who aren't working in really good jobs, who are super talented because of their own racism, i.e. the white person in the faculty lounge. The idea is that they can attest a la D'Angelo. I'm calling it um, Ken D'Angeloism. You know, you combine Ken D'Angelo. So Ken D'Angelo, I am a racist. And therefore, I have looked at a top flight black historian and decided I don't want her because she's too dark skinned and we don't want her kind. Everybody's pretending it's 1956. And it's just not true. And yet you and I sitting here pointing it out are contrarians. You and I are going against the grain. This is truly it's not sick. It's actually sadly explainable. But it's utterly pathetic. It is absolutely do you, pathetic. Do you, I, I, I agree with that. I wonder if you agree with me that a lot of people know it, and that's part of what makes it pathetic. They know it, but they won't say it. Mm-hmm. Uh, they know it's a shell game. They know, they know it's kind of a fraud, but they won't say it. They know when they're actually compromising their quality standards a little bit in order to make a, a higher, but they won't say it. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, they know that there's extra pressure with tenure time when the person is a person of color and they have to be very careful about what they do, but they won't, they won't say it. Um, I remember when Mitch Daniels, who's the president of Purdue, uh, made a statement. Uh, we happen to know this person, but I, I'm not going to reveal this person's name because it's not public information. Uh, but the person is an African American of extraordinary achievement within some field. And, uh, Daniels was, uh, flirting with trying to recruit the person and he made an observation to a, a media, uh, in a public setting in which he said, uh, uh, we're trying to hire somebody right now. I can't tell you who it is because it's still in the works, but this person that we're trying to hire is an absolute fr- frontier pushing uh, iconoclast and, and brilliant, uh, you know, uh, student of whatever. Oh, I know what's coming. Uh, and, and this person is black and they are rare as hen's teeth. Oh, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. They're rare as hen's teeth, quote unquote, a little bit like what the CEO at uh, Wells Fargo has said recently about finding, uh, top flight managers for financial institutions. And a ton of bricks fell on Mitch Daniels and he had to apologize. Now, what was he apologizing for? Not for lying. He was apologizing for hurting people's feelings. He was apologizing for telling the truth. Everybody knows that what he said was true. Everybody knows. Anybody who's been within a 50-mile radius of a college or university knows that this is true. Yeah. For reasons. You know, it has, we, have, we do have a racist history in this society. There are some other reasons, but it has nothing to do with there being something wrong with black people. Okay, well then, hold on, hold on, John McWhorter, author of Losing the Race, because as I recall that book, one of the arguments in there was anti-intellectualism. There were three things that was wrong with black folks. (laughs) (laughs) You got me. I wasn't going to get into it. Part of it is that there is a cultural factor that has school as a white thing, which is based on racism in the 50s and 60s, but it set a meme in. So that you grow up with a subtle sense that to really push too hard on the school thing is not authentic to your culture. Certainly, that makes it less likely that they're going to be physicists. Not that they're not going to be any, but it must pull down the number. And it's at the point where a lot of data shows that, um, can I say that the data shows that? No, no, there is no scientific study that shows it. But the gauntlet is on anybody to say, why would that widespread and itself conclusively proven culture-wide factor among Black people in integrated schools not lessen the number of Black PhDs? The issue is, why would it not? And then you get into the mismatch and what Peter Archidiakono is talking about, which discourages especially Black people from becoming professors in STEM disciplines. These are real things. So it's partly racism in society. Partly the soft bigotry of low expectations and the mismatch. I definitely think part of it is being told that you're white to like school when you're 13. That can change what you decide to do for a living. But all of it together doesn't mean it's anybody's fault. But it does mean that there are only going to be so many tippy-top black academics at any given time. This is, uh, you're talking about the anti-intellectualism cultural meme uh, inherited from the segregationist era of the 50s and such when African-Americans couldn't really practically, realistically aspire to certain kind of careers because mm-hmm. we were shut out and so didn't necessarily come to value them. And, and, and Glenn, I would also add that 
During desegregation, white teachers were really mean to a lot of black kids. This has been yeah. documented too. So it sets you against school. And then a meme sets in and it sticks even when conditions change. That's what happens to human beings. And so that's a lot of it too. It's not anybody's fault, but it's real. It puts me in mind of uh, Thomas uh, Chatterton Williams, my friend Thomas Chatterton Williams, Losing My Cool, uh, where he talks about the anti-intellectualism thing characteristic of his peers, suburban New Jersey, uh, you know, coming out of high school, you know, hip hop generation and whatnot. Uh, but the counterpoint for him is his father's library, 15,000 books, you know, and he spends a summer wandering around his father's library and he realizes, oh my God, there is like a universe that I don't know anything about out there. I don't know anything about political theory. I don't know anything about philosophy. I don't know anything about linguistics. I, you know, I don't, I don't, there's a lot. I don't know anything about social, social theory. You know, who is Weber? Who is Durkheim? I don't, there's so much that I don't know. Uh, and he started Thomas reading books and he became the great Thomas Chatterton Williams, whom we know today. Um, but yeah. Yeah. That doesn't happen to everybody. And that's not everybody's fault, but it does create this situation. And we also said we were going to talk about the Lamond um, piece, and I want to just have it on the record that I don't like that the photograph that they used. Let, let me tell people who it, what it is. Okay, so Lamond M, Lamond M. That's uh, L E space M O N D E. You've heard of it, right? That is the newspaper in France. Okay, so their weekend magazine, Lamond M, featured the iconoclasm of four. Uh, you know, contrary in black intellectuals. If I knew French, I'd tell you exactly how they said it. One of whom is your humble servant. <laughs> Another of whom is my dear friend here, John McWhorter. Uh, Coleman Hughes, the extraordinary recent college graduate from Columbia University, probably 22 years old or something ridiculous like that. Three. Yeah. Uh, 23 by now. And, uh, our friend Thomas Chatterton Williams. We were featured in a magazine that every person of some intellect in France is likely to see as the up-and-coming contrary and black intellectuals. I just had to say that, John, before you trash it, man. Well, I just, (laughs) I I have to be honest, my photo makes me look like a very ugly man. And it makes it look like I'm a person with ugly views. And I'm not photogenic, but all photos of me don't make me look like I have a disease. And out of the 200 shots they took, I look like I'm ill, angry, superannuated and bad. And so I must say it really disappointed me in that sense. And actually, you know, I have many flaws, but I'm, I'm not that vain. But the magazine has my picture looks bad. It's it's reason. very stylish in, in, in what you would expect from a French uh, magazine uh, with the artwork. And uh, uh, I don't read French, so I've only read it in translation, but even the language is spicy and uh, the way it's written. Uh, and it's got Thomas Chatterton Williams. I believe he's on the cover, uh, but he's certainly got a big, beautiful photo. He looks like Brad Pitt or somebody, you know, <laughs> in profile. I mean, it's just splendid. It's just wonderful photograph. He looks Thomas like a Chatterton model. Williams. Yeah. Got a good one of uh, Coleman Hughes. Makes him look a little younger than he actually is, but he is a, 19, something of a protege of a, a prodigy. It's got me all fuzzy and out of focus with the beard and stuff. I look like Fred Sanford from uh, Sanford and Son or something ridiculous like that. And John's face fills up the whole page and it's a menacing, looming, glowering, uh, you know, visage that yeah. uh, he's not happy with. Other than looked, that, it was a, it was a good. Uh, <laughs> it makes it look like they caught me having just dined on a child. 
and I'm angry that they caught me doing it. I don't know how that makes me look like a public intellectual, but it is nice that we got in there. I mean, yeah, it's it's it's, it's nice to be noticed. I'm wondering why the American media haven't discovered us yet, other than the intellectual dark web types. See, though, that is the American media now. I don't I don't feel unrecognized. I feel we've gotten our due in this calendar year. I I seek nothing else. Now you're making me think. No, I figure that that'll do. And I did Sam Harris. You, know, you did like do Sam that. Harris. How was that? Yeah. What did you guys talk about it, if you dare? Uh, you know. This, you know, we did the whole modern woke stuff. We talked about affirmative action. We talked about the cops. He let me talk. I got my I got my word out. My voice was giving out by the end of it because he goes long. And, um, yeah. yeah, it was good. And I think more people heard what I have to say. I'm satisfied. I held off for years because I always had a sense that, Podcasting, except for the one I do, and this is something else. I'd rather write than use my voice. But I've been breaking out of that lately, and I thought, I guess I need to take his standing invitation. And I'm glad I did. Yeah, and I also got some good microphone equipment out of it. Oh, yeah, I'm glad you did, too. That is, take his invitation. I've done uh, Waking Up with Sam Harris, and uh, Mm -hmm. it, it gets a lot of attention. Joe Rogan gets more attention. I've heard that. So, Joe, if you're listening, man. John McWhorter and I want to come on your program. I didn't say that. <laughs> no, I didn't. <laughs> but you know that you social, turn media, it down now, would you? social media wants us to do it, and I've come to realize that they're right. Yeah, it's true. A lot it's of people true. have said so. Uh, I think we have something to offer. But uh, we do. I got to go, man. Somebody is telling me she's my wife, Lawan, and she looks very lovely in her dinner gown. That I need to get up from this chair and get ready to go out to dinner. We're going to be late for our reservation. So I'm going to have to sign off. Well, are you going to have venison? Uh, no, man. We're not going to. Hey, there she is. Hey, I told she did great. <laughs> <laughs> I just fantasy that you're going to have venison tonight because I kind of want some venison. I want some red meat. Uh, yuck. No, I don't think so. I'm <laughs> a, we're on Cape Cod, man. The seafood is fresh. They literally caught it five hours ago. Oh, oh. That's just better than anything I'm going to have down here in Queens. So you should enjoy enjoy that dinner. And we had a spectacular day, day today. The temperature was in the 70s. The sun was shining all day. Clear skies, open ocean to the east. Uh, that sounds like paradise. We're doing okay. Good. Yeah. Thanks good. for your time, John McWhorter. Sorry about Lamont. The, uh, the New yeah. York Times Magazine, once Nicole Hannah-Jones is gone, will do better by us. <laughs> That's what you're thinking about. We shall see. Yeah. <laughs> so long, my friend. See you very soon, Glenn. Right on.